0: Welcome to the 233rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of counting the dead and accounting for care in the pandemic with Jackie Vernamont and Robert Soden. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And I have to say, um, in the last few days, I've had several people reach out uh, and suggest that they'd like to come on and talk. Please do take me up on that. As of today, March 4th, 2021, there are 2,565,369 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 519,867 deaths reported in the United States and 22,138 reported in Canada. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, He is a Hero, First Alberta Healthcare Worker to Die from COVID-19, Remembered as Kind, Caring Person. This was written by Stephanie Babish and published January 5th, 2021 in the Calgary Herald. Long term care center in Southeast Calgary is mourning the death of a healthcare worker who died from COVID-19 after the virus spread there, marking the first COVID death of a healthcare worker in Alberta. Joe Jing Corral, a Filipino Canadian who worked as a health care aide at Bethany Riverview Long Term Care Home, died from COVID 19 on December 28th at the age of 61. Corral is being remembered by friends as a hero, dedicating himself to his care of the residents with dementia at the facility, not asking for a break from work or stopping out of fear of the spreading virus. Even since we had COVID-19 in our unit, he never stopped working. He committed his life to taking care of the residents until he was one, until he was COVID positive. He gave more than 100% of his commitment to the residents, said his friend, Ephraim Tianha over the phone on Monday. Even during COVID, even during the COVID-19 outbreak, they need his care and he did not give up on them. And that is why he's a hero, said. Rao was born in the Philippines and graduated as a nurse there before moving to Canada. He and Tianha became close friends when they began working together in Canada in 2014. They lived in a two-story house together with Tianha's family in Calgary. Kingha said that Corral was a quiet friend with a great sense of humor and an unparalleled work ethic. His patience and compassion were demonstrated each day at work as he cared for and supported the residents with dementia. He was so thoughtful about making sure he didn't bring COVID-19 home because my wife is immunocompromised. He always thought of others and helped people in need, said his friend. Corral is survived by two children who are grieving his death, a daughter living in Vancouver and a son in Edmonton. GoFundMe was created in support of his family during their devastating loss called Joe Marie Jing Corral. Though he had no family living in Calgary, his colleagues and members of the Filipino community in the city became like family. Fiesta Filipino, a nonprofit that puts together the biggest cultural festival representing the Filipino-Canadian community in Alberta, said in a Facebook post that Corral was a very good man who spent his remaining days taking care of Calgary's seniors. He was the nicest man, and how he treated everyone with respect and dignity is beyond immeasurable, said Fiesta Filipino. His precious smile will never be forgotten. He is truly an inspiration. We will forever miss you, Kuya Joe, our hero. May we all mimic your heroism," said the Post. A colleague of Corral's, Romer Isidro, said, "'He was one of the nicest people to work with. "'Working with him makes the workload lighter. "'He never forgets to wear his smile. "'His sacrifice will not go in vain. "'Rest in paradise, Kuya Joe,' said Isidro.'" Health Minister Tyler Shandro released a statement expressing his sadness in hearing about the death of Alberta's first healthcare worker as a result of COVID-19. He extended his condolences to friends, family, and colleagues. The dedication and remarkable commitment I've witnessed from healthcare workers throughout the pandemic has never wavered. You have stepped up for this province in a time of need, said Shandro. The tragedy of this loss will be felt across the system and by those who were cared for by this individual and their coworkers, he said. Alberta Health said there have been 69 cases linked to the outbreak at Bethany Riverview. Of those cases, among staff and residents, 24 were active at the time that this article was published. 36 had recovered and 9 had died. Alberta Union of Provincial Employees Vice President Bobby Joe Barodi said the loss of Corral is a tragedy. With his passing, it brings to the forefront how real this pandemic is, how dangerous it is, and how scary it is to work on the front lines, said Barodi. He decided to devote this portion of his life to care for people at their most vulnerable, and that says a lot about the type of person that he was. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today, and let me introduce my guests. Robert Soden is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, working on crisis informatics, human-centered computing, and science and technology studies. His research uses a range of ethnographic participatory and design research models to evaluate and improve the technologies we use to understand and respond to environmental challenges like disasters and climate change. He holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Colorado Boulder. Prior to starting his PhD, he was a researcher at the Center for Neighborhood Technology and the World Resources Institute, a software developer at Development DevelopmentSeed, and a consultant to the World Bank's Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery. My second guest is Jackie Wernemont. Jackie is Distinguished Chair of Digital Humanities and Social Engagement an Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Dartmouth College. She's an anti-racist feminist scholar working toward greater justice in digital cultures and a network weaver across humanities, arts, and sciences. Her first book, Numbered Lives, Life and Death in Quantum Media, came out with MIT Press in 2019. It uses a two-part structure to historicize the counting of life and death in Britain and the United States. She's also the co-editor of the recent book, Bodies of Information, Intersectional Feminism and Digital Humanities with co-author Elizabeth Losch. Jackie and Robert, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to start out, um, well, and I should say also, thanks to both of you for coming back. uh, It's your second visit. And I'd I'd like to start out just by finding out um, where you're calling in from um, and what the pandemic situation is looking like where you are today. Robert, can I start with you on that?
2: Sure so I'm uh, calling from from Toronto um, where I I'm, I'm in my office here. I think the last time we talked I was in, I was in New York and um, the situation felt felt really different. Um, here in Toronto I've been just hard at work um, teaching at, at the new job, working with students, um, spending most days in, in my office. Uh, Toronto's quite uh, and Ontario is, is more or less closed down at the moment. Um, there's, uh, most businesses are closed. Um, there are quarantine orders anytime someone comes in and out of, out of Canada. So, so things are really quiet here. And I spend most of my days just working with students, um, and, and really admiring sort of their resilience through all of this and, and, and really impressed with how how wonderful the students are here, um, and, and how much effort they're putting into their studies and their research, despite, despite everything else that's going on.
0: You have the comparative viewpoint coming from New York to Toronto. Do you see a great difference in the way that the two cities more generally have addressed the the pandemic, the way it's filtered through the politics? What's your sort of headline about the difference between New York and Toronto in that regard?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I I think um, the the restrictions here seem quite a bit tighter, um, although the case counts and are 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 far lower um so so in general it just feels toronto to me um feels um just just much much quieter and 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 much calmer um and like everything is just moving very slowly here
0: and the campus you're not going to the campus
2: what's the situation on campus yeah so i haven't even set foot on campus which is very strange um the, the, the university has been teaching fully remote since the fall. Uh, there's some discussions about this coming fall, but we have heard some indication that, that even the, in, in the, the coming fall that, that teaching will largely be remote. Um, and so on, on the one hand, that's, that's really disappointing for a lot of reasons. Um, on the other hand, I do appreciate the kind of thinking ahead and, and unlike so many other universities where professors were trying to develop both online and in-person versions of their classes or some kind of hybrids, um, those aren't things that I've had to deal with yet, thankfully.
0: Jackie, let me bring you in. Welcome back to COVID Calls. I uh, hope you're doing okay. Can you tell us uh, kind of the same things Robert's been covering, where you're calling from today and what's looking like there?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm in Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, the 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 sort of general trend of of COVID case counts and um, death counts in New Hampshire is is trending down, um, which is positive. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't feel that way right now. Um, in part because there was a, a pretty significant outbreak on the Dartmouth campus um, in the last week, with uh, more than a hundred students testing positive in the span of just a couple of days, and uh, 200 plus students in quarantine or isolation. Um, Dartmouth has done a a sort of hybrid um, approach. Most of the classes are online, but a a half of the student population is allowed back on campus each term. We're in a quarter system. So we've got, you know, roughly half the students here on campus right now. Um, And there were a handful of things that were open. The library was open, but with socially distant, et cetera, uh, you know, everybody masked, there's, you know, we have a a local mask mandate, et cetera. Um, but they've closed all that down in response to the outbreak. Um, and the outbreak seems to have, um, derived from, um, a couple of, uh, fraternity parties, um, that were obviously ill-advised, um, and then spread quite quickly through the student population. So, um, we're in super careful mode, even if, uh, things are statewide a little bit better.
0: I wonder how did the faculty react in that in that moment. It's been such a trying time, of course, for everybody, university community. But, you know, a lot of faculty um, have been really eager to get students back for a variety of reasons. And there's other faculty broad spectrum. I assume there is there at Dartmouth as well. What was the impact of this outbreak on faculty opinion?
1: Um, I mean, it's hard to know in part because we all have been largely remote. And so there haven't been, you know, the kind of opportunities to pass one another in the halls and and things like that. Um, I do know that uh, I think it was three or four faculty and staff are included in those who became positive during the the recent outbreak. Um, You know, it it came, the outbreak came right after our provost had written and said, we will be in person in the fall. Um, You know, here in the U S people are pretty, uh, optimistic. I think that, uh, adults will be vaccinated by the end of the summer. Um, and so they're planning to do an in-person, uh, return here for the fall. And I think a lot of people are sort of like, well, is that now thrown into question? Um, I also think a lot of us aren't particularly surprised. Um, you know, we see the students living in various places when we go exercise or go to pick up children or whatever. And, um, the students by and large have been very mindful, um, but as winter drug on and the term drug on, right? Um, we began to see people sort of letting their guard down and um, certainly hearing that from our students as well. I, I have taught now almost a full year um, worth of classes online and um, we get different kinds of reports from students and the students were definitely anticipating that something was going to happen.
0: It's, uh, it's an effect of universities in colder climates as well, that I noted, um, when I was teaching in Philadelphia, you have a long, grueling winter, and then the first day, somehow, if it was sunny, it could even be 45 degrees. Everyone, you're like, where was everybody? They just come out. Um, and even people yeah. who, are, who are trying to be mindful of the pandemic, that's another moment in which we're sort of just accustomed to congregate, and want to, you know, share and be together. So that, that's not surprising. Um, but let me um, turn a bit to the, some of the issues I wanted to talk to you about today. We have a lot to, a lot to discuss. But one thing I wanted to ask you kind of both individually is how you see and how you feel about the, the numbers, the pandemic numbers, however you're counting them. Um, in the time that's elapsed, so maybe not so much about how you feel about it today, but but thinking back to the way that you thought about those numbers six or nine months ago. And just to jog your memory a little bit, Jackie, let me start with you. We talked on September 22nd on COVID calls, and at that time, there were 199,636 deaths reported. Um, you don't have to refer to that date, necessarily, but I am curious to how, how you have thought about those numbers over this stretch of time.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, um, I'm always mindful of the fact that the, the numbers are, are never accurate, right? They're often, um, I I assume that they're an undercount. Um, but I'm also, uh, I have thought often about a series of tweets that I think the three of us had, right. Where you sort of asked Scott, like, what's the unimaginable? Um, and, various people responded um, and they include things like there's no way we're going to get to where we were with the 1918 flu. And we are a hair's breadth from that now. Um, I wish I could say I'm surprised, um, but I'm not. Um, I still think the official count is an undercount. um, So we're probably, I mean, it's also the case that the 1918 flu, uh, right? Counts are probably an undercount, but I'm, um, I'm not surprised. I'm sad. Uh, I struggle as a person who keeps wanting to find ways to try to make these numbers um, more meaningful to people, right? Um, since I work on like, why is it that we count our dead? And why do people sort of have this kind of numbness when it comes to numbers? Um, I want to find ways to make them resonate for people um, so that we don't lose those, the, the, the gravity of the situation, um, and I I feel thwarted um, by the the perpetual increase. Um, every idea that I have um, is quickly sort of um, made uh, impossible by the, the ever-increasing scale.
0: I just want to follow up on one part of that. You're talking about the undercount aspect of that. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about what particularly agitates you about that. Is it that the sort of knowledge that what what people are reacting, somebody's saying, I'm horrified that the number is X. And you're thinking, well, the number's not X, it's X plus. Um, so it's a sort of a, or is it more about a, the failure to actually know? I mean, I want to dig a little deeper into why that undercount really bothers you. Mm.
1: It's an excellent question. I, you know, the, the history of of numbers, right, is sort of wrapped up in the Western effort to produce the idea of the fact. And um, we often sort of hold on to numbers as a, a precise accounting, right, as a, a, a thing that that we know is true. Um, and yet part of why I'm so interested in like the, the way numbers work is that they're almost never precise and accurate in the way that we want them to be. Um, and. So, you know, the day when we crossed the 500,000 mark, I was really glad that we had, you know, special editions of the front pages of The New York Times and The Washington Post. Um, I was heartened to see the new um, Biden administration uh, acknowledge that that. that mark, um, but also people treated it as if, you know, I mean, literally on NPR, I remember hearing um, one of the the people talk about sometime today, we will cross the 500,000 mark. And I was like, that is so not real, right? The, the notion that there would be a concrete moment in time that they could mark on the live radio when we pass the 500,000 mark is is all a fiction. And maybe it's a really useful fiction for getting people to care. and And maybe that's, Part of why we rely on those kinds of of fictions, um, but it it's it's not accurate right um, the five hundred thousandth person had already died um, mm-hmm. and it had probably happened weeks ago so I think for me it's trying to understand what we think numbers are good for and how we we then activate them in our our public discourse
0: i'm those That set of ideas is just really a powerful one. And, Robert, I want to bring you in on this because it's, on the one hand, it's this um, feeling. I feel it. I read numbers every day on this program, and I've examined why I continue to do that. And I do, because somehow I feel that it is of value for a variety of ways to, to talk about the scale, to put a marker in time, even knowing that they are wrong. And that also I think there's perhaps something valuable or at least provocative in them being wrong and reminding people that they are. But I I asked you that question because I'm trying to sort out how I feel about this. Robert, you and I talked, um, I had forgotten how early in the pandemic because we've been in touch throughout, but we talked on COVID calls on April 7th. And at that time there were 12,285 deaths in the United States. Same question to you um, in terms of the numbers or anything Jackie was mentioning, but. How you're seeing that count maybe differently today than you did back in April? If you do,
2: yeah, I mean, I guess I think of there's for me there's maybe two two changes that that come immediately to mind. Um, and the first is yeah, back in you know late March, or early April when we were talking, um, you know, there was just this incredible proliferation of of new projects to track COVID and you had all these kinds of volunteer efforts and the kind of journalists coming together to, to stand up their own sites and their own dashboards and to try and collect data. Um, and I think there was this urgent, you know, for a lot of reasons, there was this sense that we just didn't really know what was going on and there was a lack of a coordinated effort. And, and it was also that, you know, people, these are the kinds of things that, that people can maybe do from home, these kinds of tech and data projects. And, and we see those in in, in a lot of disasters for, for sure. Um, and and I think, you know, it's been interesting to kind of watch that sort of those some of those projects die off, some of them consolidate. I think the, you know, maybe the Johns Hopkins site is one that kind of stood up very early and has sort of um, uh, progressed. Um, I think another thing that's really stood out is also kind of which numbers are, are people paying attention to. and, and and, you know, my sense is, you know, the, the the sort of overall death counts, although people are certainly following them, have maybe less salience than they did back then. And now people are really like, you know, concerned about, well, how many vaccinations happened today, or what's how many vaccines do we have? And I think there's there's obvious reasons for that, but it is I think it's important to mark and just sort of interesting to interesting to watch.
0: That's Uh, a project that, in fact, I was just thinking who would do that? And then my answer was Robert Soden might do that to look for that crossover moment where somehow the media coverage might have, they're still doing both. And for a time, the New York Times, at least on the front page had both counts, which I thought was pretty stunning. Um, So you could choose the death count or the vaccine count. I mean, I, I know you probably haven't written about it yet, but Robert, could you just freestyle a little bit on that in terms of how would you even model that? think about that, those two sets of stats in front of people at the same time, how are they in relationship to one another as you think
2: about it? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not, um, it's interesting to to definitely think about the, the two of those in juxtaposition and kind of one ascendant and the other descendant and how that sort of just tracks with um, sort of the overall kind of narrative about about what this this event is and, and what's happening and what we're focused on right now. Um, I think, you know, in some ways when, you know, just watching those numbers increase day after day, months after months, when, when there were death rates was really horrifying. And it felt like, you know, there was nothing we could really do except watch those those numbers go up. And I think maybe with the The increased attention on sort of the vaccination rates, it does sort of indicate maybe a sense of agency, maybe a sense of this, this thing is sort of firmly under control, or there's, there's a light, at least that at the end of all of this, Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure. Do
1: you feel, do you feel, Robert, that um, one of the things that I've noticed with the vaccination rates is that it's a, it's a number, not a percentage, and I'm always struck by how the number, you know, 49.5 million looks really big until you realize that we need 300 million um, right. times two, right? Um, and and more um, to account for children, et cetera. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about, like, there's a way in which that vaccination number to me looks a little bit like false hope, Um mm-hmm. Or it feels a little bit like that, and I'm happy to have all the hope in the world right now, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm good with it in many ways. But I, I wonder if people, in the spring in particular, will begin to let their guard down and point at that that vaccination number, thinking that we're getting close to, um, you know, the fabled herd immunity that we're probably not ever going to get close to, actually.
2: Yeah. No. I think that's. I mean, it's certainly there's when when they report these numbers and put them kind of on the front page of the New York Times or on the news every night or or wherever there's certainly there is a message there and i think there is sort of mm-hmm. a projection there and and um, that's whether or not that's a a false hope or or trying to think about how people might interpret that is it's really interesting yeah i'm not sure
0: it's interesting for me when you think about how that that might play out in individual institutions. I mean, we we're just talking about universities. You could apply that to other kinds of workplaces. I mean, the state of Texas, the governor basically said, you know, earlier this week, hey, masks off. It's, it's you know, every woman and man for themselves now. And so if if the state, in many states, is not paying attention to that, um, then it's going to fall to individual institutions. I've already seen a bit of this and saying, this is... These are the numbers of people who are going to be vaccinated in our institution who, who have been. But to your point, Jackie, that overall number is, doesn't give me any comfort. It's, yeah. it's oh, it as a percentage, we have to go one step, one step further. And, and to bring it back to the, the two numbers, um, I think those national death counts to me are just, I won't say useless, because again, I, I traffic in them. Um, but the variability is, is what, to me, is profound. And so, you, you know, that number is is staggering on the face of it. But we need to know in individual states and individual communities and individual groups. Um, and that, in fact, I think, feel the weight of the number. Jackie, you've been thinking about dashboards a lot. Both of you have. You wrote a piece recently in the Washington Post, Jackie, and... You actually talked about the history of the dashboard, and I, I really hope everybody will read this piece. I'll put a link up to it at, at the end. And maybe you can say a couple of words about why you want to write the piece. But at the end, you said, public health dashboards, like our many COVID-19 dashboards, are unusual in the history of dashboards in that they share information, but not in a way that allows ordinary people to take action. We might well wish that COVID-19 dashboards functioned as both protective barriers and a way to see the information we need to clear ourselves clear out of trouble. I don't know if you expected um, in your career you'd write a history of dashboards, but here you are. Can you say a little bit about how you got there?
1: Yeah, I definitely didn't. Um, And and honestly, that that piece was a gift to myself to write, right? Because I, there's, I've been focused on teaching and caring for family and surviving so much that there hasn't been much primary research. And so, uh, researching the history of dash, dashboards was a, a present that I gave to myself for a week. Um, you know, I, the, the dashboards piece for me felt important because there are so many beings stood up. Right. And so often, um, you know, and this is something that I think we've been sort of thinking about in in possible shared writing. Um, So often metrics are used as accountability tools. Um, They can also be used as management tools, and I'm less excited about them in those spaces. But when they're used for public accountability, I think they they can be useful, right? Um, And the dashboards really don't do a good job of letting us see what we need to see, um, right, in order to stay safe, right? They're, they're not empowering us in any way. Um, but I, I sh- that's too strong. I shouldn't say in any way. I think they're not empowering us in ways where we can take local action, right, um, in our day-to-day lives. And I think one of the things that I have been really um, mindful of in the course of, of this um, pandemic is the way in which if you just look at your everyday life, things can seem kind of normal, right, until you sort of pick up your head and then realize that you haven't seen friends or family, you haven't hugged another person, et cetera, um, and that a lot of people feel really distant from the virus itself. You know, when people talk about, I can't wrap my head around the numbers, they often talk about, I don't know anyone who's gotten sick, so I don't think it's real, Um and I think there's there's something about not making it visible at the local level that does us a disservice in in this respect. And as a historian, you know I'm I do, did a lot with the the plague and and reading some of those accounts in early modern England. I mean, people are like literally stumbling over bodies, and I don't want us to be doing that. Um, but it 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 does something different. I think when you literally see the dead in the street. Um, in the case of the polio uh, uh, epidemic here in the United States and the subsequent vaccination efforts, again, like there were people that you saw, like really visceral images, right? Of, of uh, particularly young children in the case of polio um, who were in iron lungs, et cetera. And I think that motivates people. I've been really struck by um, the ways in which we get these counts at this kind of 10,000 foot or national or global level. But we don't ever actually see someone who's sick with COVID unless we know someone who's sick with COVID, um, right? We're not seeing people in the hospitals. We see body bags, um, and that has its own kind of horror. Um, But we aren't seeing people who are sick. And I think that makes it possible to disavow this as a a reality despite the numbers.
0: In the piece you mentioned um, actually the sort of um, relationship in the history of technology and the, the dashboard concept and the sort of idea of the pilot uh, or mm-hmm. the driver, you know, somebody who's actually got some, some command of things, um, which is a, to me a fascinating provocation because if we went somehow a step further with the idea of the dashboard, um, in the terms of the pandemic you would give people an option to act somehow mm-hmm. i'm not sure exactly what that would look like but i feel like that's an opportunity that could or should be there that when you see the various dashboards there's other dashboards available which w- which somehow give you a little bit more command of this of the situation robert i want to bring you in on that anything we've been talking about but i know yeah. you know you've had in your mind a lot this idea of the the care that goes uncounted, so we've been counting these other things and giving ourselves the illusion of some sort of control um, there's other things we can count that we haven't and maybe actions we can take with those numbers that have been denied to us. what's on your mind on those issues
2: yeah there, there's there's a lot there um, and just I think you know it could be a really interesting sort of speculative design project would be what would it, what would a kind of a, I don't know, a street level dashboard of, of this this pandemic look like. I remember um, I've, I used to work as a cartographer, so I focus a lot on maps and a lot of the the early dashboards and, and still today of, of COVID are really focused on these sort of overhead aerial sort of views of the situation and and you're just seeing all these big red dots on the map. And it, with very little kind of sense of what it's like to, to live under under one of those those dots and mm-hmm. and so there is a sense of yeah there is a sense of agency there there is a, a sense of there's a pilot there who's kind of driving driving the plane or the ship um, but it's not us um, and so I do think a lot of you know some of our early conversations and, and have been about well what would what would it look like if we were to kind of try to reorient that vision and sort of change the agency of these dashboards and 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 I think um, we could play it out some more, and it'd be really fun to talk about. But a lot of it doesn't fit neatly into, into maps and charts and mm. and graphics. You know, if you type kind of COVID rates New York into Google, you Google's able to immediately pull together kind of all of these yeah. like neat statistics and maps and stuff like that, and that's really great. But the kind of information that you know we might want at at a, at a street level to say. Um, might not fit quite so neatly into into those those kind of forms i um, else up there. But I think, you know, there's, there's there's more to say for sure.
0: Well, Jackie, let me bring that to you, because I, I agree with with Robert there. But I want to know kind of behind the scenes, why do you think that's true? I have my own theories about uh, the prevalence of war and about the marketplace as sort of ways that, that, first of all, these are like dominant frames. We spend a lot of time trafficking in numbers around those things. When people talk about you know, how, how bad was a war, or what was a war about? The, even people who know nothing about the history might know the, the casualty. I'm always stunned by that. People know the mortality figures of the Civil War. They may not know what the war was about. Um, so it seems that there's a pretty strong momentum culturally, in the United States at least, around talking about capitalism and talking about war, but maybe less um, in these areas that Robert's talking about. Why do you, I guess I'd like no know that's more of a comment than a question, but maybe you're thinking about those and the possibility to rewrite those narratives a little bit or to make space for these other kinds of measures.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's a... Uh, uh, I've been reflecting on this kind of question, right? And thinking about, are there historical precedences for the kind of, um, for attending to the the care work that has happened in other mass casualty events? Um, And uh, in in my case, I tend to think about pandemics um, more than war, um, although there's obviously also those contexts. I think one of the things that is missing from much of our sort of received history are the the very kinds of things that I know Robert has been thinking about with, with like mutual aid and collective care. Um, I think if you look back through like the history of nursing, um, for example, there's extraordinary labor that was um, both sort of like federally supported, but also individual volunteer work, right, that was done by U.S. nurses um, around the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic, um, around polio. I mean, I think having been reading recently about the the polio example, I'm struck by um, how polio in the United States, uh, when the first when the Salk vaccine um, was first authorized, the U.S. had zero uh, vials of it on hand, right? They knew that SOC was producing it. Canada had a ton of vials on hand, right? But here in the US, we had none. And there was a way in which, um, you know, there was, it, it came it was up to philanthropic organizations and individuals, right, to to sort of marshal the, the willpower uh, um, and also just like the infrastructure to get the Salk vaccine out, right? So the March of Dimes Foundation um, did most of that early vaccination effort. Um, and I'm really struck by the way in which the United States I I think perhaps because of its sort of federalist notion and the idea that some labor, um, including mortality counts, always devolves to the state. Right. The federal government pays each state for their mortality counts. It's like that when I first learned about that system, I was really struck by it. Um, You know, so the there's a way in which the federal government in the U.S. tends to you know, absolve itself of the need to, to handle these kinds of things at a federal level and instead allow states to take that that agency or not, um, right? And, and we're seeing that play out in real time right now with Mississippi and Texas, right? Um, the entire nation's sort of COVID status could, could potentially be imperiled, right? And the vaccination effort that we've undertaken could be imperiled by the actions of a couple of states. Um, you know, so I think there's something in the U.S. about that kind of hands-off federalist model. I think there's um, a, a lack of um, historical respect for the work of women um, and uh, of feminized labors, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be just in female bodies, but I think feminized care work. Um, and I, I really think, actually, as, as people who are thinking about disasters, if we don't find a way to account for that, Um, we're never going to understand how to actually be ready for the next one.
0: Robert, just bring you back in on that. I mean, that point that um, what counts as care work itself in so-called non-disaster times, often a lot of that's uncounted also. So it's it's a bit of an inherited problem that you come into the disaster already devaluing some aspects of care and mutual aid often operates, I was talking yesterday with Taisha Maddox um, and Dan Jocelyn about this, mutual mm-hmm. aid, you have to continually rediscover the history of mutual aid, because it continues to sort of slip through the fingers of the state. It's, it's kind of a lost form of, of care. How do you make it, again, this question, how can we make that more legible, do you think?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think there are ways in which, um, you know, after every disaster, um, people come together. People find ways to support one one another, right? Um, and and this work is is very often just informal. Neighbors helping neighbors, communities helping one another. And so, as it, so, just being outside, kind of the larger bureaucratic processes that that surrounds all of this work um, puts puts this at a, at a disadvantage in a starting place. Not to mention some of the sort of gendered um aspects of that that as well. Um, But I think there's, you know, in gosh, there's a lot of directions in which I'd like to take this. But I think there there's a there's a there's a politics of visibility that's really important and really complicated and really sort of situated here that that we really want to attend to. um, Because this act these kinds of activities, because this kinds of care and assistance um, aren't counted, there's all kinds of ways that gets devalued. And, and, and there's ways in which kind of formal emergency response and other kinds of formal formal activities make it more difficult for, th- for this kind of activity to happen. And so that, that's a problem. Um, at the same time, um, met, historically many of the people who have been most involved in mutual aid have not necessarily had great relationships with the state. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of mutual aid work in that—that's—that—that's that, that's going on um, is, you know, for example, might be conducted by undocumented folks um, who would be sort of under threat if if these kinds of activities um, were did become legible. Um, and so it becomes real a real challenge to think about how to do this, or or what we even might want this to look like. Um,
0: Robert, let me stay with you for one second because you know I'm always paying attention to the funding trends in disaster research and the space you're in um, I know you're not well I don't know if you're driving a Mercedes with your research funds, probably not but um, the area you're in has been an area of interest to funders um, in sort of data science broadly defined um, and I guess i have a a kind of an existential question for you about that that i've been thinking about too if if the if the funding stream in the united states to addressing disaster seems to continue to move towards quantities quantification how is there a way to hack that um and you don't have to give us all of your secrets all at once but i'm i know you've been thinking about this like how do you how do you make space for humanities thinking the kind of conversation we're having here and i'm not saying data science precludes that, but I know that a lot of what the funders are looking for is new toys, new dashboards, new way to visualize metrics, not necessarily for bad reasons. They want to push public funding into ways that they think it's going to make an impact, but Mm -hmm. it tends to fall back into this sort of quantification visualization mode. And I just wonder at the kind of upstream level where you are, how are researchers like you able to shift that conversation?
2: Yeah, I mean, So I think I'd love to know, and I don't know the longer history of this, but certainly within the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, uh, disasters have been very much a site of experimentation for technologists. And there's all kinds of sort of new companies with new tools and new apps that see disasters as sort of a a place to try them out. And if they can, and and I think there's complex reasons for that, that are, that are interesting. Um, But So so we've seen a lot of this and it's not necessarily kind of just now that this is happening. Um, I will say that, you know, there are real problems uh, that data scientists can solve. Um, You know, we can have better flood models. We can have better earthquake risk maps. um, And and I believe that, yeah, data science can contribute a lot to this um, for sure. I do think that there's going to be a lot of data scientists that are uh, coming into the field now that are going to be disappointed rather quickly uh, when they find out that you know, their approaches don't make any sense or actually these are some really hard problems that a lot of people have been working on for a long time. And I, and I hope in that friction, um, what it leads to is, is a broadening of a, a view of what, what the role of a data scientist is, the mm-hmm. kinds of knowledge and expertise that are necessary to do data science in a successful and impactful way. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm looking for and looking for, for ways to, to, to push in my own work is to really sort of you know, take advantage of this friction that's gonna happen um, when, with all this increased uh, interest in the space and use that in a, in a productive way to have a much more expansive conversation about the data that we use to make sense of disasters.
1: Yeah, there's a, a comment in our uh, comment stream here, right? About um, recognizing racialized care work. Yeah, thank you for putting that up. Um, and I, I think that's a really excellent point along with the gender care work, right? Um, and I think yeah, one of the things that I hope, and part of what I hear in, in your question, um, Scott, is that the, the data scientists will partner with the folks who are thinking about, right? the history of racial and gender injustices um, and thinking about why it is that uh, mutual aid or community-based care work might not want to have anything to do with the kind of surveillance that is implied in in producing metrics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Right, because to be counted is to be known. Um, And there are ways in which um, the kinds of care that, that, oppressed communities can enact for one another is it it, it operates better, right, Um, under, not under surveillance. Um, And that often the state appropriates what is good and potentially commercializable right takes it out of the hands of the communities and then seeks to make money um, or, or exert control through it and so I think it's a, it's a really delicate spot right and data scientists um, I think do well to partner with with scholars in the humanities um, and in the humanistic social sciences to think about how how to approach that um, with with care in their own um, research
0: I, I couldn't agree with that more and I, I think I keep adding more and more skill sets on for rising scholars. But it strikes me, we probably need to get past this idea. That there's a room full of data scientists and there's a room full of anthropologists and the training just needs to evolve. Um, and I've thought about that a lot in terms of like the kind of work that Kate Starbird does, for example, and people in her team about disinformation and conspiracy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think we can treat those as marginal areas or not marginal, but separate areas where people who sort of work on that sort of culture... Side um, and there's others who do mainstream policy history or whatever. Like, this the one thing the pandemic has shown me in term of, terms of the research community is our notion of multidisciplinarity. I think has let us down, um, and that's that's just me editorializing about that. But um, yeah, I mean, coming you know back to some of these issues around how you can make. Um, make things a little bit more visible and move people off the dashboard. It does strike me that, you know, this pandemic has also had the struggle for, you know, I mean, the racial justice protests in the middle of it. And I don't know if people stopped looking at the dashboard in that moment, but it certainly did reframe the conversation, didn't it? I don't know if either one of you want to want to pick that up, but I mean, it. it, it does seem like that to me was a moment where It wasn't that you stopped counting the deaths, but that the conversation evolved, I think, at that moment into something where the absolute numbers of dead became less important than the injustice of the death. And that justice frame is pretty powerful one.
1: Yeah, I I think we also got um, what feels to me like a, a heightened... Not new because this has been around for a long time, but perhaps a heightened public awareness of racial disparities, right, and economic disparities as it related to COVID. Um, So it it was a moment where people could say, you know, if if one is caring about racial justice as one should. Uh, you must also attend to the fact that the folks who are dying disproportionately are Black and Brown, right, in the United States. The people who, you know, some of the rollout of the vaccinations, um, right, where you've got mostly Black neighborhoods in New York experiencing mostly white clientele at their vaccination clinics, right? Like, um, you know, the the idea that you might have someone who is uh, not Indigenous traveling to an Indigenous area in order to take advantage of you know, local tribal uh, vaccination efforts, um, you know, we've seen some really awful behavior, um, and some really stark disparities. Um, and I think the, the, the collision of the work for racial justice and the pandemic has meant that we can see those things as, as overlapping, um, Sometimes I worry that there's just a little bit of exhaustion, though, right? Um, that that crisis fatigue is really set in um, for people, and I think that's, you know, I talk in my work about, you know, the com- compassion fatigue, right? And the the sort of as the end gets higher on numbers, people's ability to to feel. Um, gets pretty significantly reduced. And I worry um, that we have not only, you know, compassion fatigue when it comes to the the numbers of the dead, but also with the number of issues um, that mm-hmm. we're facing mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Robert, just to bring you in on that, I mean, that, that fatigue itself, it might be hard to quantify, and yet it'd be valuable to know it, wouldn't it? I mean, to begin to bring measures uh, PTSD, fatigue into that discussion. I know there's, been, there was a study out of Penn State that talked about a grief factor that tried yeah. to show sort of like the, the ripples from the stone that said, I think they actually came up with a number. I, you know, And mm-hmm. I don't know, I haven't studied their methods, but it's provocative. I think they said, you know, nine people's lives, nine people will be brought to grief for every person who dies. Yeah. That's... that's, that's, that's Away, way echoing a bit of what Jackie's talking about.
2: I mean, I, I think I really, you know, was excited to see just that people were trying to do this. And I think um, trying to come up with different methods, trying to come up with, with different approaches to, you know, quantify some of these issues, I think they are at a um, huge disadvantage in that these these methods are kind of emerging and we still, you know, have a long ways to go to really know sort of what, what they could be useful for and, and how we might best go about it. But I certainly think trying to, to broaden, you know, the range of, of, of metrics that we care about when we have this, these kinds of conversations is super important. So, you know, mental health statistics, um, evictions, um, amount of wealth transferred to kind of the richest citizens, um, mm-hmm. graduate students choosing not to go in the academic job market are all these are all numbers that are, are out there that we could get if we if we um, if we wanted to give them the same kinds of prominence as we do the other kinds of impacts. and I and I don't know, and I think again, this is still kind of early on in these sorts of conversations, so it's it's hard to say which would be most useful and for what and kind of what the the effective and the political impacts of of starting to give these numbers more prominence might be, but it's it's worth it's necessary that that we explore explore them, I
1: think. It seems gonna... to me like it's useful to have as many people as possible working on it, right? To, to do all the different numbers. Um, I'm thinking of recent things that I've heard about the women who are leaving or have left the workforce, right? Because they were mm-hmm. you know, responsible for care of, of small children and how that's probably something that's going to ripple on for a decade or more. Um, so it seems to me that there will be no uh, lack of areas um, to, to try to get our heads around some of the, the effects of the pandemic.
0: Maybe we can also take a clue from disasters where the death count um, was not the defining feature. I mean, I'm thinking of the Great Depression. Um, and one of the things that always struck me when you go and you read about the Great Depression is there are powerful metrics that are deployed there. The unemployment rate, although that, again, is problematic, probably way undercounted for, um, you know, minority populations, but the suicide rate. I always find you go back and look at the suicide rate and you look at the birth rate in the 1930s in the United States. It's just astounding. And so that's another way to kind of surface some of these things. I'm, I'm assuming that the Great Recession produced very similar. I haven't studied that as closely. It produced similar kinds of numbers. It's just they don't have the death count to compete with. So maybe you get a little bit more attention on paid to that. I don't I don't know. Maybe that's an option here.
2: And it would be really interesting to think about sort of what what a dashboard that was comprised of these kinds of numbers might look like and sort of what what would the impact be in kind of the, on our collective understanding of what's going on if those were the numbers that we foregrounded as opposed to, yeah, deaths and case counts and that sort of thing.
0: I got so into the conversation, I forgot to remind people that you're listening to COVID calls and um, talking today with Jackie Wernemont and Robert Soden about counting the dead and accounting for care in the pandemic. Um, we have a few more minutes. I wanted to turn to a slightly, well related, but slightly different take on this, which is, um, and Jackie, to you first on this, it, we've been talking about how you might use data science and, and use statistics and, and use the conversation and the rhetoric of quantification, but count different things and introduce that into the, into the public space but what about just going about this differently and using other kinds of interventions more in a more robust way, art, religion, myth, literature, other ways to make the point, Um, you know, and I think here about climate change and I think about the impact of Greta, for example, Um, she didn't, I'm sure she has a briefcase full of statistics, but that's not why she's been impactful in my perspective. It's her testimony that's powerful as a single individual who tells the story. I just haven't seen a Greta for COVID-19 yet. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong places. I don't know, Jackie, I mean, you're an artist as well as doing your humanities practice. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I have been trying to think about So the the psychology of sort of processing information suggests that uh, doing either first person accounts or uh, purely numeric accounts um, does not yield the kind of um, meaningful impact that people don't walk away feeling like they've really taken in the information and Mm -hmm. care about it um, in in the same way um, as we might want. But that um, sort of moving back and forth. Right. So a kind of telescoping between. The, the very, very intimate and the, the big numbers, right? Um, the, the abstracted or, or 10,000 foot view and the, the very um, close personal view, that that sort of movement between those two tends to activate people better, right? And so I think actually, you know, one of the things about Greta is that she, she marshals the the feeling of, of an entire generation, right, um, and and can do some of that sort of speaking on behalf, and and talks, and and acts, right? She produces acts of of transport, et cetera, that sort of echo her, you know, um, awareness agenda, and so I think um, things that grab attention are things that that we have to grapple with in different kind of temporal frames. Um, I've been thinking about, you know, what would it look like to try to understand this in sound? Um, what would it be like to try to understand this in touch? Um, you know, What would it mean to ask people to sit with the dead um, over a period of time so that they can feel it in their bodies? And I think in some ways this ties into Robert's interests with, with care work not so much in the sort of quantification of care work, but more performing acts of care as an act of remembering, um, right? And one of the things that I have not yet sort of gotten my head around is is how do we process and engage with this without re-traumatizing ourselves or others, right? Um, and I was reminded today of, of Toni Morrison's um, discussion of rememory, right? The idea that you mm-hmm. um, build, you rememory something, right? You 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 don't recover it, but you build new generative stories out of it. And I think that might be an interesting way forward, right? Um, mm. I, I'm not entirely sure what it would mean, and I think um, I'm still trying to think through methods and um, materials, right? I, for one, have been really impacted by, um, you know, wanting to work with particular kinds of sculptural media, um, but being really mindful that I want those things to be non-toxic, right? I don't want to add to the burdens of the world in creating something to memorialize COVID. Um, And so for me, that has made it feel extra complicated, but also um, potentially more... um, like literally sustaining, right? Like, could we plant seeds as a way of quantifying the dead? You know, thinking about the the fields of poppies um, around the war. Um, you know, trying to find ways that feel restorative um, and and enact that kind of re-memory rather than um, just re-traumatizing.
0: Hmm. Robert, let me throw that over to you. Thoughts about, you know, this sort of issue of bringing art or other kinds of modes of sense-making in into this.
2: Yeah. So we've done a couple of projects on this in the past. Um, and as, as part of, you know, the agenda of how do we, again, sort of broaden um, the vision of, of data scientists, how do we sort of expand the kind of, um, Kinds of knowledge that 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 we know about for for disasters, and I think that's it's been super valuable. And and you know, putting we had a project where we put um, working artists from around the Bay Area in San Francisco together with you know, earthquake engineers and sea level rise experts, and just gave them a bunch of data and hmm. a couple of days to to work together in teams and and just see what see what they came up with, and and it was a really wonderful fun project that came up with some very different visions of what kinds of information about disasters um, counted and, and how, might it be, uh, how might it be communicated. And that was, you know, so I think there's a lot more work, work to do there. We curated a, a show at, at the World Bank's headquarters a couple of years ago on, on art around disasters. And, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating how much of that art was critical of the kinds of ways in which the World Bank um, Mm -hmm. approaches disaster. And so, and I don't, you know, and it was just kind of there hanging in the atrium. I don't know if that was kind of the most effective um, showing, but it was still interesting and wild that we were able to pull that, pull that off. So I think there's a lot there. I think we could do a whole episode probably on, on art and COVID. I haven't been tracking it so closely. There's been a couple of cringy songs that have, have come out, but I certainly think we could, um, we could talk more about it for sure.
0: Well, we're, we're almost up. Yeah, go ahead, Jackie, please.
1: Oh, just real quick, being mindful of time. I think it's interesting that, um, we have lots and lots of memorials to wars. Um, I can think of very few memorials to the pandemics. Hmm. Um, the the AIDS epidemic is the one that I can think of having a right? A very um, important visual um, and community-based, right, uh, memorial. But I think it's interesting that we don't tend to memorialize, um, you know, these mass casualty events that are not war-based. Um, and I think there's something there that, that's worth digging into.
0: Yeah, I do too. I, I, to me, it circles back to, you know, our inheritances of war and the marketplace as the places where you have to keep the numbers. And so that tees you up already. You've already done a lot of the mental work of scale as you think about those, those kinds of disasters. But I, just as we, as we close out, I wanted to sort of ask you, you know, as disaster researchers, I know you, you both and I as well, when a disaster begins, we spend a lot of time explaining to people, well, actually, this disaster has been going for a long time. You just didn't see it. Uh, there's a prehistory of COVID that made certain p- populations vulnerable. And we spend, and at some point, and I feel like that point may be coming pretty soon, we spend the rest of our time talking about how it's not over or, or talking mm-hmm. about endings. And I guess I want to sort of get a little bit of your first take on that. Robert, to you first, um, I mean, the broader question is when do disasters end, but that's too broad. I mean, how will, how do you want to talk about end points or conclusion points for COVID?
2: Yeah, I, um, and this is, you know, especially going to be important as, you know, then future pandemics, future disasters happen, and, and, and they sort of, you know, perhaps in, increase in, in cadence, and we have, you know, multiple overlapping disasters now kind of going on all the time. Um, and I think until we you know, really understand kind of disasters as 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 social products that aren't sort of discrete events. Um, you know, instead of kind of just these exogenous things that happen and then they're done. I don't think we, you know, that we won't really have the ability to to come up with a a, a satisfactory answer to that to that question.
1: I think it's a great point, Robert. Right, the um, disasters as social products, and I think. Um, you know that's a, a lesson that we're still trying to grapple with here in the United States around things like systemic racism, right? Um, the movement for Black Lives is it, it's 400 years long, right? Um, and that's what historians of slavery and um, you know critical race theorists are trying to get us to always see: is that you know none of these things that feel like like punctuating events, right? They they might come up as a kind of puncture, um, but they are part of a much larger fabric. Um, and I think you know, in the case of COVID, if, if we're going to think about uh, justice, we had better not declare an end to COVID until there's an end to COVID globally, um, or at least a, a, a you know a, a, a tamping down of COVID. You know, if if this ends up being the kind of thing where uh, like it's like the flu, right, where we need seasonal inoculation, that's fine. But um, if we declare here in the United States an end to, to COVID's been you know, conquered um, once the global North has conquered COVID and not also think about the global South, um, I think we will have um, perpetuated a centuries-long um, yeah. rhythm, right, or habit um, that I hope we don't do.
0: This is why researchers like us are not so popular sometimes at the policy table, because w- what we're saying sort of is don't, don't say it's over. Like, don't reach that finish line because you will foreclose. I mean, the amount of money and care that's being exerted by the state, although it's insufficient from my point of view, but it is there. Mm -hmm. And to then declare somehow victory at some arbitrary point and say the pandemic's over, it's going to shut that off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're looking at Republicans in Congress in the United States who are going to basically try to slow and drain the process as much as they can on, on relief. They want to declare that it's over. So that that declaration, that moment in time, is is uh, it might be arbitrary, but it's not. It's politically, um, it's a, it's a really viable
1: moment, and and materially important to lots of people's lives.
0: Um, I don't want the conversation to end, but I think um, we, what we should do is declare this the concluding part of a, of a part one of a conversation among the three of us. Um, Cause it's been really generative and I, and I thank you for your, for your time. And I want to just remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live every weekday, at 5. PM Eastern time. And um, please do join me tomorrow for that. And I want to thank my guests, Robert Soden and Jackie Wernermont for your time today and um, sharing your thoughts about these issues and I want to remind everybody to stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.